Well, Dallas Cowboys. Yes, I am a fan of the Dallas Cowboys, as Jay mentioned. And uh, the Dallas Cowboys recently fired their head coach, Jason Garrett. And it was the best thing that's happened to the Dallas Cowboys since they won their last Super Bowl. And not just because Jason Garrett just smiles and claps as the ship is sinking and on fire and under barrage from the enemy at the same time, but also because Jason Garrett is a master at what I call coach speak. So you watch the post-game press conference after they've lost another game, and the question is asked from somebody in the journalist pool there, so coach, what, what corrections are you going to make next week? You rushed for 22 yards, and you supposedly have the best offensive line in all of football, and you've got a great running back, so, so what adjustments are you going to make next week going up against the number one rushing defense? And Garrett would say something along the lines of, well, you know, we're going to go back, we're going to look at the film, we're going to leave everything on the field this week in practice, we're going to give it all our all and do our best, and I've got some great coaches, and we're confident that we'll have a good scheme for next week. And then they move on to the next question, and you realize that he may have said a lot, but at the same time he said what? Nothing. Absolutely nothing. Well, in the church, we have our own version of church speak, coach speak, Christianese, if you will, Right? We throw phrases and we throw sentences and we throw things uh, around that we either don't mean or, or we don't really know how to define, but we know it sounds good and so we'll say it. Somebody comes up and, and says, how are you doing? And you say, great. And then they, they ask you about your week and you give them a praise report and then you say, you know, praise the Lord. And we kind of tack that on at the end without even really thinking about it. And, and do we really mean that? Do we really understand what we're saying when we're attributing the good things to the Lord and saying, praise God for what's happened in my life, or is it something that's just subconscious? Or, hey, you know what, I'll, I'll be praying for you this week. Well, I think another bit of Christianese and, and church speak, so sort of call it, is this concept of the fear of God. To say, well, do you fear God? As believers, we're going to say, yes, absolutely. The fear of the Lord is a good thing. It's a right thing. It's a proper thing. And we all need to have and cultivate the fear of the Lord. But if someone were to, to, cat, uh, to, to corner you on the, the patio after a service and say, can you, can you tell me what it means to fear God? Would we be able to answer that question? Would we be able to tell them, yes, this is what I mean when I say that I, I, I fear the Lord? It's when we start to get a little fuzzy in our definitions and we mention words like awe and reverence and wonder and respect and devotion and, and those are all parts and components but can we really boil down this is what the fear of the Lord is and this is why we need to fear God. Well in our passage that we're going to be looking at together this morning from First Peter, uh, Peter sets out to do that for us to help us understand the fear of the Lord, why it's necessary in our lives and what it should look like. And really what we're going to find is that the fear of the Lord is a, a holy obedience, a holy devotion to God that's driven by who he is and what he's done in our lives, motivated by his character and also by his actions toward us. If you're not there, open up to 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 17 through 21. And you'll notice that verse 17 begins with a, the word and. And last week you looked at this great and, and, and well-known passage that ends, since it is written, you shall be holy for I am holy. And then Peter says, and if you call on him as father. So you see there's a, a connection between our pursuit of holiness and our godliness in what Peter's about to say in the passage that we're going to read together now. 
Verse 17, and if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown from before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest or revealed in the last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God. Peter begins with this idea of God as our father, and yet also God as our judge. We call on him as father, and yet he's also the one who judges impartially, judges according to each one's deeds. And so Peter says, as a result of this concept of God as our judge, we need to conduct ourselves with fear throughout the time of our exile. If you're anything like me, you can be driving down the highway and you can be driving the speed limit and you can be doing everything perfectly right according to the laws of the road. And then all of a sudden a CHP officer gets behind you. And you look in your rearview mirror and you see the black and white and you see the lights and the lights aren't on, but he's just, he's behind you. And all of a sudden, what do you do? You slow down a little bit, right? Even if you're going just the speed limit, you slow down a little bit. You become cognizant of all of the things that you forgot in driving school. You think about how far you are from the car in front of you. Can I get pulled over for tailgating? Is that something that's wrong? Can I, am I far enough back? Are my lights working? Do I have enough turn signal fluid in my, my car? Is, is everything operating right? Are my windshield wipers? Is, is there anything that he could pull me over for? And then you think to yourself, what? I, I want to get away from the CHP officer. And so you make sure that you hit your turn signal about two miles before you're going to get out of that lane and into the lane next to you. And you wait until there's a good 400 yards between you and any car to your right. And then you, you slowly get over and you just pray as you're getting over that he's not going to follow you over, Right? Yeah, or maybe that's just me. But why do we do that? Well, we do that because we have a healthy fear of the CHP officer behind us. We know that he has an authority to enforce the law in our lives. We know that if he sees us transgress the the driving laws, the laws of the land, that we're going to see the blue and red lights start flashing and and we're going to have to pull over and he's going to write us a ticket. And so there's a healthy fear that has an impact on the way that we drive. It has an, an impact on our behavior. It has an impact on our, our actions. It's not just that we understand it. It's not just that we believe that he has this authority, but our belief and our understanding then proceeds to change the way that we behave. That's a little bit, a bit of, of, of what we're talking about when we talk about the fear of God. Except it's not a CHP officer in a rearview mirror. It's the God of all creation that Isaiah saw in Isaiah chapter 6. Listen to what Isaiah sees there. Isaiah chapter 6, verses 1 through 5. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord, Yahweh, sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two, he covered his face. With two, he covered his feet, and with two, he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory, and the foundations of the thresholds shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And I said, woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. 
know, Peter says, if you call on him as father, which is one concept of God that we have, that he is our father. Romans 8 says that we have received the spirit of adoption by whom we can call out Abba, Father, that we have that intimate relationship with God. That proximity to the Lord that is shared only by those that are part of his family. And because of our adoption through Christ, we are a part of that family. And so we can address the Lord as Father. And that's one concept. And now Peter marries it with the concept of God also as the impartial judge. He's the one who is not going to show preference. He's the one who's not going to show partiality. He's the one that's not going to sweep our sins under the rug. He's the one who sees all, knows all. And ultimately, one day, will bring all to account. And he is this God from Isaiah chapter 6. And so if we see a CHP officer get behind us on the highway, and that changes the way that we live, the way that we are behaving in the moment, certainly the the idea that we live our lives before this God of Isaiah chapter 6 should change the way that we live, should change the way that we conduct ourselves, as Peter says. To conduct yourself is to live according to a set of principles, it's to be holy for God is holy. It's to put off the, the, the old man and to put on the new that Paul talks about in passages like Colossians chapter 3. It's to put to death the deeds of the flesh. It's to manifest the, the fruit of the Spirit in our lives. It's to live according to a set of principles, principles given by this holy, impartial, just judge that he's called us to live by. And it's going to produce a life in us like the life that Jude calls us to in Jude 23 when he says, save others by snatching them out of the fire and to others show mercy with fear. He says this, hating even the garment stained by the flesh. That we want nothing to do with the flesh, with the sinfulness in our lives. We want nothing to do with ungodliness. We want nothing to do with the things that that just and perfect and holy judge is one day going to bring us to account for. Again, God the sobering, or God the, the, the just and perfect judge should have a, a sobering impact on our lives. The way that that CHP officer has a sobering impact on the way that we drive when we're cruising down the highway. The reality is all of us, according to 2 Corinthians 5.10, have an appointment with this just judge. Believers are going to appear before the judgment seat of Christ to receive, Paul says, what is due for what we have done in the body, whether good or evil. And because we have that appointment, what is on that docket is a review of our lives, a review of how we conducted ourselves while we were in this time of exile, this time of living here, this time of waiting for our return home, this time of waiting for God to bring us to be with him. That will be what is on the docket on that day. And so accordingly, point number one for us this morning, we need to live mindful of that future judgment. Live mindful of your future judgment. We teach this to our children from a young age when we bring them here to church and we drop them off in their KBC classrooms, especially our twins, who are our most sanctifying children. When we take them and we drop them off in their classrooms, we tell them, now your teacher is going to let us know how you behaved at the end of class when we come to pick you up. And we don't want to have a a bad report when we come to, to pick you up. And they're beginning to understand that more and more as we have gotten a few bad reports and we've dealt with that accordingly afterwards. And so we're encouraging our twins as we drop them off. Twins, live in mind, live mindful of, of your future judgment that will happen when mom or dad comes to pick you up from KBC and gets the report from your teacher. Well, man, God doesn't need a report on you and I. 
God does not have a, a cosmic team of, of elves on the shelves that are watching our lives and going back and reporting to him. Why? Because he's the omniscient one. He is the all-knowing creator. And the Bible says that he is the God before whom we live every single moment of our lives under his watchful gaze. Proverbs 5.21. Proverbs 5.21. For a man's ways are before the eyes of the Lord and he ponders all his paths. Your ways, your, your, your daily decisions, choices are before the eyes of the Lord and he ponders all of your paths. Proverbs 15.3, the eyes of the Lord are in every place, every place, keeping watch on the evil and the good. Matthew 12.36, Jesus says there, I tell you on the day of judgment, people will give an account for every careless word they speak. What does that mean? Well, that means that on that day that God is going to have a record of every careless word that we've spoken. How? Because he's the omniscient God. We live our lives before his sight. We speak our words in the hearing of his ears. In fact, we formulate our thoughts in the presence of his knowledge. He's the judge before whom we are going to appear. And so think about the buckets of your life that you have, your thought life, the things that you turn over in your mind on a daily basis, the things that you dwell on, the things that you marinate in your mind, that, that you allow to, to entertain your thoughts. 2 Corinthians 5.10, one day you will be giving an account for everything that you have done, whether good or evil, and that includes the thoughts that you have entertained because God is omniscient and knows them. We just read in Matthew 12.36, your words, the words that you speak, how you speak to your wife, the things that you've said to your wife, the things that you've said to your children, the things that you've said to your neighbors, your coworkers, your family members, the things that you've said to the guy on the road that cut you off. God is going to, on that judgment day, 2 Corinthians 5.10, call you to give an account for every careless word that you've spoken. Your actions, your deeds, the things that you do, your work, your relationships, the different categories, spheres of your relationships, the, the, the relationships that you have as, as a friend to brothers in Christ and also to unbelievers. God is going to give you, uh, uh, is going to call you to account for those things. Your relationship as a brother, husband, Father, son, these relationships are, are, are part of what God is, is, is watching as we live our lives, calling us to conduct ourselves with fear before this judge. Your free time choices, your entertainment choices, your church involvement, your service. God is going to call you to, an, uh, to account on how you loved his bride, the church. So we think about all of these things and that God wants us to conduct ourselves with fear during our time of exile in all of these different areas. And we ask ourselves, well, this is hard, isn't it? Yes, it is. This seems exhausting. Yes, it does. This seems like it's, it's contrary to the world's values, that the world is not going to make this easy on me. Yes, you're right. It's not going to make it easy on you. It is contrary to the world's values. But the reality is you and I have to keep a rigorous account of our lives because God is keeping a rigorous account of our lives. And one day we will stand before the judgment seat of Christ and, and we don't have wrath to fear on that day because we know at the cross, 
God's wrath against our sin was poured out on Christ. But we do know that everything that we've done, whether good or evil, the scripture clearly says that our deeds are going to be passed before us, that we will give an account for these things before Christ. And I, I don't know about you, but I, I don't want to have more that I'm shrinking in shame before my Savior at that moment than I am saying praise God as, as the rewards are, are produced through the acts of obedience. And so that should instill a, a, a fear in us. And we say, well, how long do we have to live this way? Is there a point in time when we get to retire from this? And I would say, yes, there is. When you die, then you're done. That's what Peter means when he says, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. Yes, he was writing to a group of people that were literally exiled. They were spread throughout the regions of, of modern-day Turkey. They were driven from their home by persecution. They were away from everything. And, and Peter was saying, throughout the time of your exile, but really he wasn't just driving at the concept of their exile physically, but he was talking about their exile spiritually. That you and I are foreigners, strangers, aliens, that this world is not our home, and that while we live here, we live as exiles because we were created for a home that is somewhere else, that is yet future. And so this life that we have to live, that we have to conduct ourselves in fear before the Lord is a life that we have to, to live for the rest of our time here on earth. Battling, fighting, putting off, putting on. Making sure that we are bearing in mind that future time when we will appear before this perfect and just judge who shows no partiality. And no, we don't have to fear, depart from me, I never knew you, if we are in Christ. But the Bible also says that some will be saved, but only through fire. That that appearance before the judgment seat of Christ is going to be a painful and shameful experience. And that should drive us towards godliness. And if you think, well, that sounds like a lot. We need to embrace Paul's mindset in 2 Corinthians chapter 4. Remember when he says that things are a light momentary affliction? Light momentary affliction. Why? Because he has eternity in view. Because God is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory. And so to conduct yourselves with fear, is that hard? Yes. Are you going to have to sacrifice? Yes. Are you going to have to give up things that the world says that you should have? Yes, you are. But we can say with Paul, that trade is, is easy when we consider eternity and the glory that awaits for us there. We're preaching through Ecclesiastes with our college ministry. And one of the, the key themes there is, is the, this theme that life is temporal, right? Vanity. It's a vapor. It's a mist. It's that, that steam coming off the coffee. It's, it's there and then it's gone. And one of the things that I told them this past week is I said, you know, I've, I've talked to a lot of saints who are in their latter years of life and you know what I've never heard any of them say? Man, it took forever to get here. Oh man, this, this has been the longest life I've ever lived. I am so tired. I cannot tell you how long it took to get here. No, what do they say? It goes so fast. It goes so fast. And I've heard plenty of, of saints say to me, man, I, I wish I had come to faith in Christ at a younger age. I wish I had lived a godlier life when I was younger. I wish I had taken my faith more seriously. I wish I had led my wife better. I wish I had invested in my children more. I wish I had invested in, 
other men in the church more. I, w- I wish I had served more. I've heard that time and time and time again. I've never heard anybody say, I wish I hadn't done those things. See, men, this life living mindful before a judge who will one day call us to account is, is a difficult life. But it's a life that's temporal. It's an exile that really is short when we consider eternity. And if we will set ourselves to live this way, I think with those other men, we will not regret it one bit. We're here for a short time in our exile, but its brevity does not preclude its gravity. And so Peter wants us to live lives of holiness and godliness before the Lord. Yes, he's our father, but he is also the just judge. That's why Paul says in Philippians that we need to work out our salvation with what? Fear and trembling. With fear and trembling. Conduct yourselves with fear during the time of your exile. Well, Peter pivots a little bit here and he gives us some of the positive motivation for living in fear before the Lord here in the next couple of verses. Look at verses 18 and 19. He says, knowing this, conduct yourselves with fear during the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from your feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver and gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. God has ransomed you. And that implies what? That you needed to be ransomed, right? That there was a a price on your head. And that price on your head was brought about by your sinfulness, by your rebellion against God. There was a a debt to be paid in order for God to reconcile you to himself. And so Peter is saying that, that God did just that for you. That he ransomed you. That he paid that price. And that price, he says, was a a costly price that he paid. And he he did that for what purpose? You were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers. Peter's writing to a group of, of some of them Gentiles who had come out of the feudal ways of, of literal idol worship going to the temples, going to worship these false gods, having household gods in, in their homes. Well, you haven't been to the temple of Zeus or Diana this week, I'm I'm guessing. But you've been ransomed just as much from your feudal ways. Your feudal ways of before Christ being a man of self-righteousness. Thinking that you didn't need Christ. Thinking that you were fine in and of yourself. That you could pull yourself up by your own bootstraps. That you could rely on your goodness, your intellect, your wisdom, your skill to make it through this life. You've been ransomed from the feudal ways of, of your pride of your anger, of your lust, of your malice, of your drunkenness, of your idolatry, making your career your idol, your God, making your possessions your idols, your your, your gods, making your family your idol, your God. Whatever it is that that you were devoting your life to instead of devoting your life to God, Peter says that, that God has ransomed you from those futile ways of living. Titus chapter two, Paul put it this way. He says, Jesus gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. So in other words, your salvation, your deliverance was costly. It it, it involved a ransom that needed to be paid and it was paid in order that you would make a break with your former way of living. That God ransomed you to conduct yourselves now in fear before him during the time of your exile. 
That He paid the great price in order to break you free from your sin. And that price that He paid indeed was a, a costly one because it was not silver or gold that He paid, but the precious blood of Christ. And so the question is, what are you doing with that sacrifice? The answer, I hope, is that that sacrifice has, has knit you to the Lord and devotion to him. That you fear the Lord, that you are committed to him, that you are anchored to him, that you are all in, that you are fully surrendered to his lordship in your life. Point number two for us this morning is this. Devote your life to the one who ransomed you. Devote, consecrate, offer, give, commit, surrender, Be all in with your life to the one who ransomed you. Do you ever get frustrated when something that you buy doesn't work the way it's supposed to? There's a commercial right now on and I don't even know what the commercial is for, so it's not a very good one, but it makes me laugh. This guy comes home and he he walks in the door and he, he tells the smart speaker, he says, smart speaker, play whatever music. And it does nothing, no response. And he says, smart speaker, play whatever music. He raises his voice, like that's what it needs. And there's still no response. And then he yells, smart speaker, play that! Right? And then the smart speaker lights up and it says, internet failure. And then he loses his mind, right? And I laugh because it's convicting, <laughs> right? I've gotten mad at Siri and, and Alexa before. But, uh, but, but it's, it's why. It's because it's not doing what it's supposed to do, right? We, we buy something, we set it up, we... We install it, and and it promises to do something, and then it doesn't do what it is supposed to do. And if it's something cheap, then it's no big deal, right? You move on from it. Okay, well, I tried that, and that didn't really work, so, you know, toss that in the junk drawer and move on. But if it's something that cost you, if it's something that you made a significant investment in, something you, you paid a lot of money for, and then it doesn't do what you want it to do, How frustrating is that? How aggravating is that? To say, man, I I paid such a high cost for this and look at it. Man, I wonder how many times that's us with God the Father. That the price that he paid for us, 1 Corinthians 6.20, you were bought with a price. Not silver or gold. Notice he says not with perishable things like silver or gold. He doesn't say like hay or straw. He doesn't say like monopoly money. He says silver or gold. I don't know about you, but if if I had some more perishable things like silver or gold, I wouldn't be complaining too much, would you? But Peter says that's, that's nothing compared to what Christ gave for you, what God paid for you. Your ransom demanded the precious blood of Christ. And the question is, how are you now living? God bought you to fear him. He bought you to live for him. He bought you to be devoted to him. And is is he looking at you? Is the omniscient God looking at the way that you're living your life and going, you're not doing what I bought you to do? And I paid a price that's immeasurable. The precious blood of Christ, like a lamb without blemish or spot. The the valuable blood of Christ. See, here's the reality, man. 
you and I will never find cause to think that God underpaid for your salvation. We were not a deal for God. Logically, God got ripped off when he saved me. That's what Paul says in, second, or in Romans chapter 5, doesn't he? Because how does he describe us when we were ransomed? He says we were what? Weak, ungodly, sinful, enemies of God. When Christ died for us. When God paid our ransom at the cross. And so we need to have the humility to understand that. The humility to say, wow. God, if, if you look at me as an investment... And from a human perspective, that's not a great investment. I'm not a deal. But that's grace, right? Isn't that the definition of grace? Unmerited favor? Looking at God going, why would you do that? And such thoughts should now devote us and, and cause us to think, how should I live my life now? And that's the question. How are you living your life? Is God looking at you in the way that you live your life, the way that you are conducting yourselves? Is he looking at you now and saying, wow, he's showing how much he values the price that was paid to secure his redemption. He's honoring that sacrifice in the way that he's living his life. Or is he looking at your life saying, wow, he's treating his salvation as though it's commonplace, as though it's cheap. Again, a few areas to consider. Entertainment, right? What are you entertained by? Do your entertainment choices demonstrate that you value the precious blood of Christ that was shed on your behalf? Or are you being entertained by the very things, the very sins that put Christ on the cross to begin with? Man, I'll, I'll be frank with you. There's absolutely no reason for any of us in this room to be watching anything on Netflix or anywhere else that's rated TVMA. I don't care how many of your coworkers watch Game of Thrones and want to talk about it. I don't care how many of your coworkers watch the latest Apple TV show and want to talk about it. I don't care if you sit there and you say, I can handle the nudity on it. It's a, it's a lie. You can't. And it is corrupting you and it is destroying you. And you are throwing mud and dirt and filth all over the cross as you sit there and watch that. Stop. what you sit there and look at on, on the computer screen. Christ gave his blood for you. How are you responding to that? Your marriage, man. God ransomed you to be a husband who loves his wife like Christ loves the church. Are you doing that? There's no exception clause in there. If she's easy to love like Christ loved the church, if she's a believer, if she submits to you, then love her like Christ loved the church. There's no, there, that, that's nowhere to be found. It is husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. How about the area of evangelism, men? God ransomed you and he has dropped you into a mission field. 2 Corinthians 5 says that all of us as believers, as followers of Jesus Christ are now ambassadors for God. 
going out and, and with the message of reconciliation, imploring people, be reconciled to God. Are you doing that with the lost in your lives? Because here's the reality. God puts you in their lives to be a missionary to them. Not me, you. I have people in my life that he didn't put you in their lives for, to be a missionary. He put me in their lives to be a missionary. Am I doing my job? Are you doing your job? Are you wasting God's investment in you? by just trying to coast through life until you get through and he calls you to be with him. Well, let me just not commit any of the major sins and put this thing on cruise control. Because after all, it's salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. It's not on me, right? You're right, it's not on you. But you are going to appear before the judgment seat of Christ someday. And he doesn't want to look back at your life and see you in neutral. Matthew 5, 16, this is the life we should live. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who's in heaven. That's what we're talking about, man. Living a life that people look at you and they go, whoa, what? why do you live this way? Because I've been bought with a price and I'm devoted to the one who paid that price. The ransom... The idea of the price that was paid is wonder enough for us. But Peter goes on, look at verse 20. He was foreknown. He was foreknown from before the foundation of the world and was made manifest or revealed in the last times for the sake of you who through him are believers in God who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. These two verses contain so much theology in them. So much theology in them. It begins, he was foreknown from before the foundation of the world. We understand, right, that the cross was never plan B. That God was not caught off guard when Eve took the fruit from the tree. It's not as though he was sitting there going, Eve, don't do that, don't do that, no, what are you doing? And looking at Adam going, Adam, lead your wife, what are you doing? Why are you being lazy just standing next to her? No, it's quite the opposite. God created Adam and Eve knowing that Eve was going to eat the fruit, knowing that Adam was going to fail as a husband, knowing that death was going to spread to all men, knowing that the cross was going to be necessary. And we get a glimpse in these verses into the eternal counsel of God. See, at some time in eternity past, which is an oxymoron because God created time with creation, at some point, in eternity past, the, the triune counsel of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit got together and Christ was foreknown from before the foundation of the, uh, the earth. In, in other words, the idea that he was going to pay a ransom for you, that God was going to, the, the Father was going to shed the precious blood of the Son, that that was foreknown from eternity fast, past. And, and that is why, gentlemen, in, in Ephesians 1.4, we can see Paul say that you and I were chosen from before the foundation of the world. Not based on our own merit, but based on God's foreknowledge, his predestination, his decision that he was going to give Christ for our sins. He was foreknown from before the foundation of the world, but he was made manifest in the last times for the sake of us. He was revealed in the last time. Remember from verses 10 through 12 of 1 Peter chapter 1, where Peter says that the prophets were inquiring. The prophets wanted to know who it was that, that the Spirit was implicating with passages like Isaiah 53 or Psalm 22, they, they wanted to know, okay, what is this all about? But what did Peter say? They were serving us. 
who have now been, been made recipients of the knowledge of who they were indicating. We've been made recipients of the gospel. Peter's saying the same thing here, that he was foreknown from before the foundation of the world, but he was revealed in the last times to you and I. That, that the gospel was made known to us for our sake, so that through him we might be believers in God who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. That raised him from the dead and, and gave him glory. Think of Philippians chapter two. And we, we have the kenosis passage, the emptying passage, that he didn't count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself. And then it goes on. And, and then what does it say towards the end there? That at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow on heaven and on earth and under the earth. See that God raised him from the dead and now has given him glory. So that what? So that your faith and hope are in God. Because if, if, if God is able to do all of those things, what is there that you can't trust him for and hope in him for here and now during the time of your exile? See, Peter's writing to them going, you, you don't need to worry. You don't need to be afraid. You see how he's laying the foundation before he even gets into the, the nitty gritty of what's facing them. He's saying, guys, remember your salvation. Conduct yourselves with fear right now during the time of your exile. Why? Because of all the wonderful things that God has done for you. And if he's got that, he's got this. If he has paid the, the, the ransom for you, then he can handle what you're up against today. It brings to mind Paul's words from Romans 11. 33 through 36, he says this, Oh, the depth, oh, the depth of the riches and the wisdom of the knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments, inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has been made his counselor? Or who has given him a gift that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Paul's overwhelmed at the thoughts that he's just been writing about the wisdom of God, about the glories of God, about the gospel of God. He's overwhelmed by the goodness of God, by the grace of God, by the mercy of God. And he sits back and he says, God, it doesn't make sense. We can't understand it. We can't wrap our minds around it. We can't comprehend it. And so he says, the only thing that we can do is be in awe of it. And that needs to be us as well. That's our third point together this morning. Be amazed at your salvation. Be amazed at your salvation. A, a, a huge part of fearing the Lord is this wonder, this awe of who he is and, and also what he has done. Right after that passage in Romans 11 comes Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. Paul's conclusion after being amazed at the, the glories and the wonders of the gospel is what? He says in Romans 12, that we should present ourselves as an offering to the Lord. So in 11, he says, be amazed and then allow that amazement to drive you to worship. Allow that amazement to drive you to commitment, to what we just talked about, devotion. Allow that amazement to produce in you a full surrender to the Lord, to present yourself as a living sacrifice to him. The question is, does your awe of God 
or to put it maybe in a way that's more tangible, does your appreciation of the doctrines of God, and, and we're a church that appreciates good doctrine, aren't we? And that's a great thing. But not as an end in of itself. Does your appreciation of doctrine drive your worship of God? Does it cause you to be in awe of him? Does it drive your obedience? Does it fuel your prayer life? Does it impact your speech, your words? Does it mold your thought life? Does it lead you to trust him? So that your faith and hope, as Peter says, are in God. See, as we stand in in awe and wonder at what God has done for us, that he has saved us, that he has been so good, that he has ransomed us, not with perishable things like silver and gold, but with the precious blood of Christ. Uh, Again, it drives in us this thought that, okay, God, if you can do that, there's nothing that you can't do in my life. And if, as Paul said, you didn't withhold your son from me, how will you not freely with him not give me everything that's necessary for my life? Everything that's good for me according to the Father's definition of good. And so as you sit there and you think about the trials that you're up against, your circumstances at work, know that God is aware of your circumstances at work. He knows what you are up against. He knows what it will cost you if you don't compromise. He knows what it will cost you if you remain faithful to God, if you remain fearful of the the judge whom you will have to one day give an account for. He knows what's at risk. And what Peter's saying is, if you can trust him for your salvation, you can trust him at work. Those of you who have trials in your marriage, God is aware of them. He knows the difficulties. He knows how hard it is. He knows the feelings that you have. He knows the the obstacles in trying to lead your family spiritually. He knows the obstacles that you may be facing financially. He knows the obstacles that you may be facing spiritually with your, your children. And Peter's saying, have faith and hope in God because if he was able to ransom you from your futile ways of living, he can take care of what you're facing right now. See, this is, uh, again, Peter issuing a call to to trust the Lord as an extension of our fear of God. To trust him, because as we look at anything else that we might put our trust in, that should cause us to be afraid. To trust our own wisdom, our own abilities. Anyone else in our lives, no one else can claim to be as trustworthy as the God who's ransomed us. So do you trust him? Is all of this that we've been talking about, is it more than doctrine to you? Is it more than facts? Do you you believe that you have been ransomed with the precious blood of Christ, that one day you will appear before this judge before whom you will give an account? Do you believe that in eternity past, God foreknew the ransom that would be paid for you? Do you believe that he chose you at that point? Do you believe that he has redeemed you from your futile ways in order to live for him? 
Remember the context that Peter was writing to. Believers who had been driven from home, driven from family, driven from places of worship, under the threat of persecution, under the threat of death, living under the reign of Nero. And yet, you know what Peter says? Fear God. Don't fear any of that. Fear God. He's the just judge. He's the one who bought you for himself. He's the one that made you the recipient of his overwhelming grace in the gospel. The fear of the Lord. Fear God. What is it? I think Peter shows us it's a life of holy obedience, devotion to the Lord, driven by who he is and what he's done for you. Driven by who he is and what he's done for you. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for those two realities, who you are and what you have done for us. That you are the, the holy and just judge Lord, before whom in our sins we stand guilty, condemned, and yet because of your goodness and your grace, you acted on our behalf through Christ. You ransomed us from our futile ways of living. You gave Christ that we might live, that we might experience forgiveness of our sins and now live in fear of you, conducting ourselves in fear throughout the time of our exile. God, allow us to do that and do that well. We pray this in the name of Christ. Amen.